The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January would make a great gift for your pastor. It's the New Concordia Commentary on John, chapter 7, verse 2, to chapter 12, verse 50. This latest Concordia Commentary is written by Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Bill Weinrich. Learn more about our January Book of the Month at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. The New Concordia Commentary on John 7, 2 to 1250. refrain of that great hymn, Thy Strong Word, says, Praise to Thee who light dost send. Now, God has not only sent light into the world in creation, He's also sent light into the world in His Son. And then His Son says, You are the light of the world. What does that mean? Welcome back to Issues Etc., coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. It's time to look forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary, the fifth Sunday after the Epiphany. Pastor Sean Denzer joins us. He's Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Sean, welcome back. Good to be back. What is the overall theme for this coming Sunday? It's a little difficult, so we're continuing in the gospel through Jesus preaching on the Sermon of the Mount. The rest of our readings definitely have a wisdom focus to them. So so wisdom is certainly from the Lord, as we understand it as Christians, and as it is all through the scriptures. But its wisdom is applied knowledge. So this is this is for the sake of action, for the sake of what we're doing. And uh, one of the themes then that, that ends up showing among all the readings is that our good works as Christians aren't self-chosen works. They're to be defined by the Lord's commands, by the stations in life that he puts us, and they're to be exhibited for all for his glory. So that's going to be important as we look at it, that, that we're not coming up with our own ideas of what will be good or looking at our definitions of love and goodness and then saying, therefore, God uh, will be impressed with whatever it is we do and put forward. We're going to learn from Jesus what is true, what is right. We're going to learn from his scriptures how to be corrected and how to know what is a good work. So the classic understanding of the third use of the law will be present today. What is the intro at for the coming Sunday. How does it read? Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the just decrees of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Glory be to the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
Where does that come from, and how would you take us through it? This is uh, from Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is an, a, a giant acrostic poem, so it's the longest psalm in the scriptures. And each letter of the Hebrew alphabet goes in order. Each section is eight verses long, and each verse in those eight verse sections all begins with the first letter. So Aleph, our equivalent of our A, is the first letter, and then every, uh, if you can imagine that, the first eight verses of Psalm 119 in the Hebrew would all have words that begin with A. So that's kind of the structure. The purpose of it is all about deep wisdom of the Lord. It continues to reflect on the Lord's word, on his law, on his precepts, on his testimonies, all these different synonyms with some slight nuance to what the word of God is, both in its commands for our actions and in its wisdom and its enlightenment from the Lord himself. This is the second section of the psalm, so right near the beginning. It continues the theme of the Lord's wisdom, the need to have the word of God at the front of what we do. But it introduces two themes that will continue through Psalm 119. One is the idea of a young man setting himself on the right path, being corrected, receiving instruction as a youth, looking forward to the fact that it will bear fruit his entire life. Very similar to Proverbs in that way. And then also exactly the theme that I mentioned before, which is that the Lord's word is what determines what is true, what is good. So how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it, not just according to whatever is popular or respected today, but according to the word of the Lord. And it is in his statutes, it's in the decrees of his mouth that we find the truth. And thus, there's a great delight in the word of God that we see throughout Psalm 119. And uh, when it says like testimonies or law, this is an all-encompassing word referring to his word. And we delight in them greater than the riches of this world. And uh, we'll fix our eyes on his ways and enjoy meditating, hearing them over and over again. And then uh, I think that last phrase is especially good too, to delight in his statutes and not forget his word so that the word of God and even his commandments go with us our whole life so that we're never just kind of off and running on our own apart from his word. It starts it, but it also continues our life together. You wanted to point out that this is a third use of the law, which one of its major functions to teach and guide guards us against what you've mentioned before here, and that is self-invented works. Yes, we're definitely going to see this in the Old Testament reading as, as in fact, what the Lord is calling out Israel for, is inventing their own things kind of based on his, kind of with a reference or under the cover of the Lord's own commandments, but they're entirely their own works, serving their own purposes, not what the Lord instituted and for his purposes, which means it's not a good work at all. So I think this is part of the reason why some have tried to say the third use of the law is not necessarily a positive thing, because they want to point to this corrective, instructive characteristic, this guarding that it has, even when the Christian is setting out to do a good work, is that it rebukes all of our tendency to invent our own works, right? To define them ourselves. So we have this all the time now because of the slippery word love. And even for those who aren't necessarily Christians, they know that verse that says God is love, that love is the fulfillment of the law. And therefore, you know, when they say love is love, it's all the same. As long as you're being loving, 
they're trying to run it the opposite way. So it's not that God shows us what true love is, and therefore, because he loves us, we love one another, as First John says. They try to run it the other way, where we have decided what we think is love, and therefore, God has to agree. We all have to agree with whatever that shifting, changing definition is. In the history of the Christian church, we had this problem with, say, monasticism, with sometimes the liturgy, and certainly other practices where the rules and regulations and social norms even put in place by the church became the commandments of God. And going back even farther, this was a difficulty with the Pharisees, that they had come up with applications of commandments. For example, like for the Sabbath day, you're not supposed to do any work. Well, how many steps can you take? They had that measured out. Or just to be sure that you don't do work on the Sabbath, you can answer the telephone in this way, but you can't answer the telephone in that way. And to make those then the commandments and to say, if I'm upholding these external things for the sake of good order, that's what God is pleased with, or that's what God is angry with if you leave it undone. I think the liturgy is a great example of this too. So for example, we have these lectionaries that we follow. We have these hymns that are appointed by the church. We have lots of things that are laid out for us that even involve our bodies. Like uh, it says at the beginning that we often make the sign of the cross when we hear the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the beginning of the service. But the making of the sign of the cross itself is not a pleasing thing to God. It can be very helpful to Christians. It's good for piety. That's why we encourage encourage it, that we would take a moment to remember the name that's been put on us in baptism, remember the fruits of Christ's cross, which has forgiven our sins and given us a new will and a new life in him. But the doing of the, the making that sign of the cross is in and of itself not the good work, right? Growing in faith, that might be a good work. Hearing the Lord's word and delighting in it, that's a good work. But the particular action there is not. And so all of this is then laid out for us to say, we always return to the word of God to be corrected, to be shown what love is, what its boundaries are, what its definition is. And we consider our place in life according to the Ten Commandments, as it says in the Catechism, both for where our sins will be found, but also to understand where the good works that are prepared in advance for us to do lie. The Collect, how does it read and what would you say about it? The Collect for this Sunday, O Lord, keep your family, the church, continually in the true faith, that relying on the hope of your heavenly grace, we may ever be defended by your mighty power through Jesus Christ our Lord. So this Collect is originally paired with this matching Sunday in the old lectionary, and the gospel reading there was the wheat and the tares. I think we can hear kind of the distinction there between the church, what the church's hope is, looking toward the last day when, of course, the angels will come and treat the world like a harvest uh, with the threshing floor, and the hint that we should be defended by his power rather than, say, digging up all the tares, which was the question from the workers in that story. So with our text today, is there a way we can find this connecting with it? Certainly, it's a general prayer for the church to continue to grow in faith so we could connect that to the wisdom that we're going to speak about today. And this prayer, I think, is fairly generic anyway, so it certainly fits all the time. What I think is interesting, so it prays that the doctrine of the church in particular would be preserved, and also that our hopes would be fixed beyond this world and that our defense would not be in ourselves. And I think that is similar to the, the reason we're interested in the commandments and the law of God 
instructing our good works so that we know we're following his direction rather than inventing our own things and pretending that they're the sacrifices the Lord answered, usually because those things are easier to do than affect the Lord's commandments, which at some point reveal their impossibility to make us righteous by our working. Thus, even as a Christian sets out to be a sanctified person, to live according to God's commandments, to please him in what we say and do, we don't have our hearts fixed on that as if we are going to earn our salvation through this. Our confidence is in Christ Jesus. By his death and resurrection, he's made a way into eternal life for us. He's brought us into his kingdom, into his family, the church, and therefore trusting in his grace. That's why we set out to live our days. But we know that our citizenship is not here. It's in heaven. It's with him for eternity. Pastor John Denzer is our guest. We're looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary, the fifth Sunday after the Epiphany. We'll get into the Old Testament reading next. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we dig further into St. Luke's Gospel with Ask, Seek, Knock, Jesus and Beelzebub, and keep it, sign of Jonah, and the light in you. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for the word of the Lord endures forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January would make a great gift for your pastor. It's the New Concordia Commentary on John, chapter 7, verse 2, to chapter 12, verse 50. This latest Concordia Commentary is written by Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Bill Weinrich. Learn more about our January Book of the Month at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. The New Concordia Commentary on John 7, 2 to 1250. Your daily Lutheran Bible class. You're listening to Issues Etc. Save the date. The 2023 Lutherans for Life National Conference is October 11th through 13th at the Holiday Inn Cincinnati Airport in Erlanger, Kentucky, with visits to the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum. Look for more information in early 2023 at lutheransforlife.org conference. Lutherans for Life. Equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. Lutheransforlife.org Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial-A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial-A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're looking forward to the fifth Sunday after the Epiphany, according to the three-year lectionary with Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The Old Testament reading is from the prophet Isaiah, the 58th chapter, verses 3 through 9. Read that for us, if you would, Sean. 
Here's the Lord uh, and Israel speaking back and forth to each other. Hopefully you can hear who's talking first. It starts kind of the Lord quoting his people. Here we go. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you, Lord, take no knowledge of it? Well, behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, the Lord is saying, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under it? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your own house, when you see him naked, to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. He will cry and he will say, here I am. So the Lord is confronting his people with the foil of fasting, really is, I suppose, one example of their misuse of his commandments. So this is the character that we see in the Pharisees that Jesus rebukes. Also, he does it when they're trying to nitpick him to death with things like, well, you didn't wash your hands first, or, you know, you're not supposed to crush grain on the Sabbath in your hand to eat it, that's too much work, right? That's like going to the mill and grinding all your grist for the week. So much of these are their particular interpretations and extra rules added to God's commandment in a sense to, I suppose, if you want to put in a positive light, to make it possible to keep the Lord's commandments flawlessly. So I suppose if we put an extra barrier, then you never even get close to breaking it, right? And in my mind, the, the best example of this is kind of the Jewish practice of not saying the name of the Lord for fear of misusing it. But as as we know, the Lord actually has given his name for a purpose, to be used rightly. And so you misuse it by neglecting to use it too at the same time. The Lord here then takes the matter of fasting. So the Lord, of course, expects fasting from his people. He expects humble people. He wants them to be repentant before him. But he points out the hypocrisy in their fasting. So they've done this, in fact, to seek their own pleasure. I'm reminded of uh, of some of the biggest fasting times we have are either preceded or perhaps followed by gluttony and raucous uh, eating and drinking. So uh, I was just down in New Orleans, and they're famous, of course, for Mardi Gras. There's nothing wrong with having parties. But if Lent becomes the occasion to really just focus on the party before it, rather than why we're fasting, which in fact is for the party after it, for the, for the celebration of Easter, there's real potential to miss the point there. Likewise, sometimes our churches have had like Lenten soup suppers, which I suppose in its founding was probably the idea that we would all come together as a congregation, as a family, the church, and we would eat something simple. Soup is not usually a rich fare. 
culinarily. But these days, we probably have all the desserts and everything else too, and it's probably worth asking if we've become similar to the Roman Catholics who have grand fish fries during Lent, better fish than I think I eat any other time of the year, right? So that's happened with Israel. So also they've made it into an occasion to fight about these things. This is always a danger that is inherent with any kind of use is that it can be abused or that the debate about wisdom and what is good and smart can be turned into a cudgel of holier-than-thou attitudes or of simply, you know, what what I say is the wisest or the rightest in my eyes, therefore everyone has to adopt it on pain of salvation even, right? Or the Lord isn't going to hear you. So these are the kinds of squabbles the Lord's people were having. And the Lord says, you're using fasting and, and my good commandments as a cover for your own wickedness in this way. So he gives the example there. They're uh, spreading sackcloth. They're they're using ashes. They're doing all the things that you'd expect to find in the Lord's people. But none of the other attendant good works, according to his commandments, are present. So then the Lord gives a contrast and says, this is the fast that I've chosen for you loosing the bonds of wicked, right? Caring for the poor, feeding the hungry, right? Isn't that the point of setting aside your bread for a time is to to share it with those who in fact are needy? Isn't the point of clothing not to cover yourself up so you can uh, show it off to other people, but in fact to give to both your own body, but also to those who are in need and have nothing to cover themselves, right? The Lord says, if all these things were in place, of course I would hear you. So in this way, he's spurring his people by this jealousy, by this rebuke, to do the right thing and to call upon him and and giving a promise with it. Of course, I will hear you. But to come before the Lord contrary to him uh, with a false spirit, with a lie and a deceit, you should not expect that the Lord will listen to that. The Lord is unlike us. He is able to see into the heart. He knows the faith that is behind the actions. So he will also then know if the love that comes forth is neither according to his word nor according to trust and faith in him, but is deceitful. So this is helpful in in many things, but just to realize that what the Lord has done, the, the, the grace that he shows to us and the commandments that he has are not in contradiction to each other, as Paul says. They are consonant. Therefore, we are to be consonant with it also. Where we are out of step with it, we're to repent and seek his forgiveness. But to have this deceit, which classically in the scriptural language is to have like two faces, to be a two-faced person or a two-minded person who says one thing here and says the opposite thing over there, the opposite of which would be to be sincere without duplicity. That is a pure heart. But a heart that is full of deceit, lying to ourselves, trying to lie to God as if that were possible, this is destructive to faith and and very dangerous. The psalm is Psalm 112. How does that read? Praise ye the Lord. Blessed is the man that fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. His seed shall be mighty upon earth. The generation of the upright shall be blessed. Wealth and riches shall be in his house, and his righteousness endureth forever. Unto the upright there ariseth light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. A good man showeth favor and lendeth. He'll guide his affairs with discretion. Surely he shall not be moved forever. The righteous shall be an everlasting remembrance. He shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed, trusting in his Lord. 
His heart is established. He shall not be afraid until he see his desire upon his enemies. He hath dispersed. He hath given to the poor. His righteousness endureth forever. His horn shall be exalted with honor. The wicked shall see it and be grieved. He shall gnash with his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. It's interesting that last verse, which maybe gets a little mean in our kind of modern years, is omitted in a lot of the other lectionaries. So here's a place where Lutheran Service Book has chosen to expand this psalm and not leave anything out. It is very interesting that that should be left out because I think it's it's very close to the heart of this point and to the context in which our Lord gives his Sermon on the Mount, which is to his disciples and those who are following him but in the presence of those who are even already beginning to connive against him, who are pricked in their consciences to hear his rebuke of them, to show them something in particular that we're going to see today, that the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, the really exemplary people of the Jewish religion, fall under the Lord's condemnation more than under his praise. So they are even now gnashing their teeth against this righteous man and his wealth of wisdom that he's bestowing on us. It's a fine commentary and compliment to the Old Testament reading, particularly the blessing that the Lord gives at the end, where he promises to those who are righteous according to his commandment, he will give the blessing, right? So often the reason that we we set out to do our own good works instead of the Lord's good works is because his are probably more difficult for us, but also his might not give us the glory. His might not seem to give success immediately. This is certainly the theme that's recurrent in Proverbs. But we as Christians trust his word. We trust it more than what we see. We value his promises and his testimonies more than all riches, as our intro had said. And therefore, we are to be patient and wait to receive our blessing from the Lord, even if that blessing shouldn't come until the last day or the day when we're raised to be with him forever. So in typical kind of Old Testament wisdom fashion, Psalm 112 puts the blessings and the righteous good works for the sake of the poor, establishing others, uh, dispersing to the poor, etc., puts these right together so that we would see them and say, ah, just as it says in the fourth commandment, right? To do these things, to honor our father and to mother, to follow the Lord's commands and, and to see our good works in those is to, uh, to receive the promise that it will go well with us and we'll live long on the earth. And then not to be afraid in the meantime if we don't see that coming immediately. We will get into the epistle for this coming Sunday, 1 Corinthians 2, right after this. Several Issues Etc. regular guests are candidates for leadership positions in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has received nomination forms for the President and Vice Presidents of Synod. Please encourage your pastor and congregational leaders to fill out and return these nomination forms before February 28th of 2023. Learn more at issuesetc.org 2023 nominations. IssuesETC.org slash 2023 nominations. What is mental health? The February issue of The Lutheran Witness takes up this question of mental health with contributions from 
the LCMS Task Force on Mental Health, which is tasked with providing resources for Lutheran church workers to better care for their own mental health and those entrusted to their care. To pick up your copy, visit cph.org witness or visit our website witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Have you ever wished you could see Ad Crucem's products before buying them? Well, you can. Come visit us at our workshop in Littleton, Colorado, and watch how we make our Christmas ornaments and print our icons. Check out the quality and fabric of our church banners, or choose some greeting cards, posters, or jewellery. Of course, if you can't make it to Colorado, we're always open online. For details and directions, visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. This is Pastor Leonard Payton of St. John Lutheran Church, Forest Park, Illinois. Forest Park being an inner ring suburb of Chicago. We're a mile and a half south of Concordia University, Chicago, and a 10-minute walk from a metro station and the ends of both the blue line and the green line. If work is moving you to Chicago, consider joining us. If you're visiting Chicago, come worship with us. It's a church for a great city and a great location. Our website is stjohnforestpark.org. Old Theology, New Technology, you're listening to Issues Etc. Come and experience firsthand by sitting down in classes and actually hearing professors. Coming to chapel, which is always the high point of the day, to hear the Word of God and to lift our voices in song. Issues Etc. regular guest Dr. Paul Grimm on why you should consider visiting Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Spend time talking to professors. I mean, there's not a professor here who will not be willing to to take time, whether it's after chapel during the coffee hour or just to come into one's study and, and sit down and talk for a while, to answer questions, to you know, help them to get a sense of, A, you know, do they want to be a pastor or a deaconess? And then B, is this the right place? And well, maybe C would be the question, is now the right time for them to make that decision? If you've contemplated the vocation of pastor or deaconess, contact Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, 1-800-481-2155, 800-481-2155, or send an email to admission at ctsfw.edu. The second volume of the Concordia Commentary on the Gospel of John is our Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January. It covers John 7-2 through 12-50. It's written by Issues Etc. regular guest Dr. William Weinrich. You can find out more about this book and order it at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House, ask for the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January, the Concordia Commentary on John 7-2 through 12-50, one 800 325-3040, We're looking forward to Sunday morning, the fifth Sunday after the Epiphany. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest. Sean, the epistle, again, we're reading continuously through 1 Corinthians, is 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 12. Take us into it. And I, when I came to you, brothers, this is Paul speaking, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 
Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but that Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. I'll read on. We have an option to go to the end of the chapter so we don't miss anything. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So there's quite a bit going on here. First of all, just to observe that nothing was skipped from last week. And if you continue all the way to the end of the chapter, you won't miss anything before next week either. I think it really does fit well, unusually again, or just by uh, by a blessed coincidence. It fits well with this contrast between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of men. So as Peter says, Paul can sometimes be a little difficult to understand. He seems to be against wisdom here, uh, but in particular, the wisdom he's against is not Proverbs, not the Psalms, not our Old Testament reading from Isaiah. He's against the wisdom that comes from men, where men will draw their logical conclusions out as far as they can go, and men will be faulty in this particular area that they have far too high an estimation of their own powers and abilities. They always tend to put God under their own wisdom. And as we heard last week in the last reading, God did not choose to be known through the wisdom of men. It wasn't the philosophy of the Greeks that stumbled upon him. Think of the Mars Hill situation where Paul's in front of all those uh, Greeks and he says, oh, I see you. You're even praying to gods you don't even know. That's how uh, religious you are, I guess. So they haven't been able to find him yet. Paul says the one you don't know, that's the one that's the true one. And he was known not through wisdom, but through the foolish words of the cross. So Paul's focus here is a little less on the wisdom we were talking about before for action of good works and more on this wisdom of Christ crucified as we continued from last week. You know, what is secret and hidden about this wisdom of God. Well, that he would choose to become incarnate, that he would choose to suffer and to die as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. I suppose lingering behind this is the the great mystery of the Holy Trinity. We have the Spirit mentioned. We have the Son mentioned, of course, Jesus Christ the crucified, the one that we want to know nothing else but him, and the Father, God, who's being mentioned. So Paul is talking about the deep wisdom of God's word. God's enlightenment, the truth of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ Jesus by his, his saving cross. And what is omitted here, I, I think it's, it's worth considering adding that extra part, because this is a very important seat of teaching 
where it speaks about this in verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they're folly to him and he's not even able to understand them because they can only be discerned spiritually. And let's clarify that word. That means by means of the Holy Spirit. What this is saying is that we're the wisest Greek who ever lived, who was a great philosopher, who had his logic down and who could observe accurately this world and come to good conclusions. And he can get quite far in terms of good action, service to neighbor, maybe if he can build a great city. But he's not going to be able to reach into the things of God. He's not going to be able to understand, most important of all, the salvation of the world through Christ Jesus. He might not even understand the necessity of that salvation. And he may be found, as the Greeks are, as Socrates was in particular, offering sacrifices to the gods, even at their last hour, gods that are made of stone and metal and all the things that the Old Testament talks about as well. So that's all there in the deep wisdom of God and how easily we substitute our own means of salvation, our own gospel replacements, if you will. But what is true about the gospel is also true about the law, as the rest of the text is saying as well, particularly the other scriptures we have today, that we're to learn this from the Lord's own word, from his revelation, not simply from what we discern or figure out on our own seeing with our own eyes, because those things can deceive us and they can account for the sinful human heart that of its own nature isn't even able to understand God, much less appreciate, believe, trust, and serve him. What do we find in the gradual? This is our seasonal one. We've heard it before about uh, praise the Lord, all nations extol him. And I guess it's of no great connection to the readings, but I do think we can we can find a connection in this the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. That's the foundation of why his word is trustworthy and uh, his commandments and his promises ought to be heeded by us. But in particular, it has this phrase, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. And in that kind of ascribing, bring your offering and come into his courts. So you might say, what kind of offering will the Lord be pleased with? Well, as we heard in the Old Testament reading, not the fastings for all of our purposes, but according to what he's commanded, especially that we care for those who are poor, who are in need, and we would turn away from ourselves selfishly and be a little selfless toward others who need it. But in particular, this phrase about ascribing the glory due his name, this has been so fruitful uh, for us as Lutherans. Well, C.F.W. Walther, for most of his addresses to the Synod, did them all under this title. He said that the Lutheran teaching, the Lutheran church, gives all glory to God in what it does. First, that sounds like just a, a kind of a, obviously I, people would want to do that. Christians would want to give glory to God, of course. That's how the catechism for the Calvinist churches kind of begins, right? The chief aim of man is to praise God and to, to please him in all things. But what the Lutheran church is interested in is recognizing that the Lord is glorified Certainly in himself, he does not need us to praise him and to butter him up or to make him have a, a, an established amount of godness. That's certainly the way the ancient world thought about it. If this god was popular, this god became more powerful, right? And it's seen most dramatically, I suppose, in, as the psalm says, chopping down your tree and fashioning it into an idol 
even though you seem to have power over it, now you've made it so that it has power over you, as silly as that may seem. The Lord has his glory long before we ever came around. Uh, He doesn't need us to establish him. But the Christian's pleasure is to echo him, to say what is true about him. And chiefest of all glories of our God is that he is the savior of sinners, that Christ who is crucified, him and him crucified, this is all we want to know when it comes to our salvation. And what we classically say is this gives glory to God, that he wishes to be the savior of sinners, that he wishes to bring those who naturally could not even understand him or believe in him to faith in him by his word, by the power of his spirit, to trust in that death and resurrection of Jesus for our salvation and to be saved entirely by him, not by our decision, not by our works coupled with his grace or any of these other ways, to have him be the sole savior of sinners is to ascribe glory to him. Therefore, if we ever were to mingle works in with salvation or reason and wisdom in with salvation as if we had a part in it, This actually then takes away from the Lord's glory. We're giving some of it to us, therefore taking it away from him. So we want to ascribe the glory that is due his name. Our works then are not for ourselves. They're for our neighbor's direct benefit, and they're indirectly then for God's benefit in this sense, that he is honored in that. That's what makes it profitable to us, not that it suits us or gives us pleasure or any of the things that Isaiah's text was rebuking the Lord's people for. The verse, Matthew 5, 16. Real simple from today's reading. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is quite a perfect complement to what we had just said, right? To ascribe the Lord, the glory due his name, both in the law and the gospel, both in our actions, but especially in his sole action for our salvation. This is the purpose of good works. It's not that we would merit something on earth from them, or that we would earn ourselves into God's good graces. But if anything, it's so our neighbor has what they need, especially if they're in need, but also that they would praise him for that. Um, so, so that's what pleases us most as Christians is when the Lord is praised, when all glory is given to him. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest. We'll get into the gospel reading for the fifth Sunday after the Epiphany as we look forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary after the break. You can meet and hear journalists Mark and Molly Hemingway, LCMS President Matt Harrison, San Francisco Archbishop Salvatore Cordelioni, Pastor Peter Bender of the Concordia Catechetical Academy, and Kyle Mann of the Babylon Bee at the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference Friday, June 16th and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. For more information, visit issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385. Deaconesses are women trained to share the gospel of Jesus Christ through works of mercy, spiritual care, and teaching of the Christian faith. The word deaconess means servant. Find out more on how you can serve in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod through the vocation of deaconess at lcms.org deaconess. Working in faith. 
laboring in love, remaining steadfast in the hope of our Lord Jesus Christ. LCMS Deaconess Ministry, lcms.org slash deaconess. Solid, serious, substantive. You're listening to Issues Etc. Metro East Lutheran High School in Edwardsville, Illinois, is looking for an English teacher with a master's degree for the 2023-24 school year. Edwardsville is 30 minutes from downtown St. Louis. The position would involve teaching upper-level, dual-credit English classes. For more information, send an email to Principal Jay Krause, J-A-Y-K-R-A-U-S-E, at M-E-L-H-S dot org, Jay Krause at M-E-L-H-S dot org. Did you know that Luther Academy has been providing continuing education for confessional Lutheran pastors and laypeople worldwide for more than 20 years? Luther Academy publishes Logia, the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatic Series, and Luther Digest. Find out more about Luther Academy and sign up to receive their free email newsletter at lutheracademy.com. lutheracademy.com and like them on Facebook, facebook.com slash lutheracademy. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Sean Denzer is our guest, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. We are looking forward to Sunday morning. The Gospel for this coming Sunday, Matthew 5, 13 through 20. Take us into that. And observe that this is in three parts, and we'll talk about them all. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What would you say about that gospel reading? Well, let's start with the salt one, which I think is definitely the one that is uh, uh, most difficult for me. And that's probably because it's hard to figure out what the salt means. Salt has a number of uses and purposes in the world. It's mentioned that we're the salt of the earth. To pour salt on the earth is kind of classically a way to say to destroy it, to burn it up, or to or to put so much salt in there that the ground won't be good for growing anything and it will become sterile and dead. So it's definitely destructive, a wrathful use. On the other hand, salt is a preservative. Salt is a seasoning that, that makes food taste better. In fact, it amplifies all other flavors in a food. We know that salt can have some healing properties or clarifying properties, even though it stings if you put it on a wound. And salt can have positive and negative senses, you see. So it's a little difficult to understand what Jesus might particularly have been saying here. 
But in any case, he says, if you've lost the characteristic of that salt, which I'm not even sure how that's chemically possible, right? Then what's the point of it, right? If you've been given something that's a treasure, if you are something wonderful, which the Lord has made, then to not act appropriately to that would to be to squander it and to become useless yourself. So we'll definitely see this, I think, in concert with everything that's come before, right? These people who bear up under persecution, those people who are blessed of the Lord, ought to be a blessing to others. So I think that's a a good start, at least, on what the salt is, whether that's a provocative thing, a stinging thing to the world, a rebuking uh, method, or even proclaiming a message that could cause offense in the world. Certainly that would be applicable, I think, to the Christian understanding and message. So likely something to season the world, something to bring joy to this world. Certainly the gospel does this. Or even something that would be preservative to the world. Christians, both in the law and the gospel, make for what is a good and wise life here on earth, but in particular that enables us to understand that this life in its sinfulness is not the best it could be and is not what the Lord has in store for us in the resurrection. So all of that, I think, are strong possibilities, and and I think there's a way in which they all can, can be seen to be wise here. The second section is about the light of the world. This one is a lot easier. It's also helped by the fact that Jesus has kind of two metaphors going on at the same time. So if a city is up on a hill, it's not going to be a secret. Everybody gets to see it. You can see it from a long way off. It's well known. It's prominent, you might even say. And likewise, when you light a lamp, you don't hide it under a bush. You don't tuck it away. But the whole point of a lamp is that it gives light, that it clarifies, that it reveals where everything is, and that by putting it in a prominent place, it can shed its light on more of the room uh, and make it very clear. So then Jesus says, whatever light we have ought to be shined on others so they can see our good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. I think it's it's astonishing to the hearer of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that he doesn't say those who are Jews. He doesn't say those who are of Israel, those who are good Pharisees, those who spend their time at the temple, those who are in synagogue every week. Those are not his first comments, but he's talking about you. That is particularly his disciples, and then by extension, those who also follow him and heed his words. So it is Jesus' followers, his group of people who have become the light in the world. He is already beginning to show that his church is the true fulfillment of Israel. That's going to be an affront against the Pharisees who have their own sort of Israel according to their own commands, not according to the word of God. But Jesus is trying to show that he is what the Old Testament had always been pointing to, that his Christianity is the fulfillment of that Old Testament, which leads us well to the next portion. Well, let's look then at uh, the second part, which I think is in a way much clearer and probably one that we've focused on more, but one that's going to be very important for the rest of what Jesus says also. And that is that he hasn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. So we just observed an astounding thing, uh, maybe to the hearers, is Jesus seems to be setting up himself and his particular disciples as the important group. We might even say the chosen people of the Lord. And that seems like an affront because we know the chosen people of the Lord are 
the Israelites, they're the tribe of Judah, etc. We've been focused on this a lot if you've been reading through the Old Testament. But now Jesus says he's not coming to squash that, to destroy that, or to get rid of it. In fact, he's coming to fulfill them. It seems after he mentions law and the prophets, he focuses mostly on the law, which is very interesting. So already then we're starting to understand that the scriptures are the source for what seems to be a uniquely Lutheran teaching about the distinction between the law and the gospel. But this is already present in the word of the Lord. So law, as we've seen in the Psalms, as we've seen in our intro, law can be used in many different ways. Sometimes it simply means the word of God, the Torah, the first five books of Moses in particular, but by extension, all of God's word. Sometimes it means the commandments of God, which is how we often use the term law as opposed to gospel. But law and prophets is together a way of speaking about the Old Testament, which would have been the scriptures at this point. All of this then is rich when Jesus says he's come to fulfill these things. On the one hand, he's come to fulfill what Moses said. So we've seen already he sat down on the mountain and began to teach and expects everyone to hear his words. He's speaking with authority. Well, that's what Moses said in Deuteronomy, that the prophet like me will rise among you, and to him you must listen. Likewise, uh, Jesus is fulfilling all of the prophecies about the Messiah who is to come, uh, the one to whom we'll listen, the one, in fact, who will suffer on our behalf. And that means also that Jesus is fulfilling the law as in the commandments of God, as in the righteous deeds and actions that the Lord expects, that this is the purpose of Christ coming in our flesh. Uh, it wasn't to show us, uh, hey, you guys aren't doing a very good job of what I commanded you. It's easy. Watch me. Now you try but that he actually came to fulfill it in our place, to make it full what we, uh, though we have tried for all our lives, and though we still wish to as Christians, are not able to fulfill. That then is important when Jesus says, this stuff is not going to pass away until everything is accomplished, which could mean two things, I suppose. One, that the Lord is going to bring it to fulfillment in his death, absolutely, as we spoke about, but also until all is accomplished suggests until heaven and earth have served their purpose until the end of this world and the beginning of the new heavens and earth at the last day. These phrases, uh, the not a, an iota, not a dot, are speaking about the little flecks. They'd be like commas and periods or apostrophes in our English language. Small things that uh, seem to make a little bit of a difference, but sometimes when you're going fast, you kind of skip past them or you elide things. The Lord's saying, nope, everything is going to be clear in what I've commanded and what I've given, and it shouldn't be forgotten. But it must be understood through me. It must be understood through its fulfillment and not taken as a stepping off point to make our own system of rules or regulations or anything based on them. At the same time that Jesus is very much rebuking the Pharisees, as we saw in the Old Testament reading, he's rebuking those who would not operate in faith or in love according to his word, but according to their own systems that they devise. As much as the Lord's rebuking that, he is not giving up on what has been commanded. He's not saying that the gospel can be tossed aside if the times change or if it suits you, or that the commandments of God, what is true and right and good, can be changed or altered if it suits you. So he says, in fact, the person in my kingdom 
who is great is the one who teaches them and does them even. For teaches them, I think we all can do that if we're faithful to his word in repeating it and echoing it. For doing them, there's where we, unlike Christ, uh, do not fulfill them in and of ourselves. Nevertheless, we continue to strive for that. On the other hand, particularly the person who relaxes these things, who does what comes naturally to us when we come up against a difficult command or one that doesn't suit me at the time, well, we try to slip the knot a little bit. We try to lower the bar or raise the bar, I suppose, if you're limboing under it, right? So it's easier to get under. That is the human sinful heart's tendency always to take the commandments of God and to make them more possible for ourselves when we find any kind of difficulty or contrariness to what we want. And that is what the Lord is rebuking in particular here. Pastor Sean Denzer is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Sean, thank you very much. My pleasure. Tuesday on Issues Etc., we're going to discuss a lawsuit filed against Colorado baker Jack Phillips for refusing to bake a cake celebrating transgenderism. Our guest will be attorney Matt Sharp of Alliance Defending Freedom. And we'll talk to Dr. Bill Weinrich, author of the latest Concordia commentary on John about I am the resurrection and the life in John chapter 11. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.